Welcome to this week's Read All About It with me, Nuri Vitachi. And me, Shu Si. It was all about different kinds of love last week as we had a look at Monsieur by Emma Becker and Major Pettigrew's Last Stand by Helen Simonson. And our classic was Jane Eyre, Charlotte Bronte, of course. And this week it's uh, my turn to start and uh, we're going to start with a book all about art. And it's by Donna Tartt, and it's called The Goldfinch. A big book. <laughs> a big book in every way. It's 773 pages. Uh, and, uh, and big in terms of the, uh, the effect it's had with winning all sorts of prizes and getting right up there on the bestseller list. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, have, you, have you checked out that one? No, I've, I started part of it, but I didn't finish it. It was just too long. So tell me about it. <laughs> yes. what, what, what was the experience like? Yeah. It's an interesting book because it's, it's one of those... I must admit, it's one of those love it or hate it uh, type books. And um, it's interesting, some of the critics just, uh, they were so violent about it. The, uh, the critic in The New Yorker said, uh, it's tone language and story belong in, a ch- in children's literature. Mm. And uh, <laughs> several were very scathing. But um, Donna Tartt has had the last word. It's uh, top of the bestsellers in multiple countries. And uh, it's won uh, all, all the big awards. Uh, Amazon selected the novel as the best book of the year. And it's also won the, the sort of grown-up awards, the Pulitzer. Surprise! I mean, you can't really get hard than that. Can't get much better than that, <laughs> yeah. really. Yeah. The Goldfinch is a is a first person book about. Uh, it's mostly told by uh, a boy called uh, Theo Decker. He's uh, he's a teenager who uh, is in an art gallery when suddenly uh, he's, he's with his mother. Uh, suddenly, there's a huge explosion. He doesn't know what's happening, and he wakes up in the rubble with an old dying man. And the old dying man, uh, they try and communicate, and he's talking in what seems to be um, a sort of delirium. And he points to various things. And to try and comfort this dying man, the boy picks up what the man's pointing to, and it's a a small painting uh, from the art gallery, uh, well, from a museum, really. And uh, the, the dying man also gives him a ring and a message. And then the man dies and the, the boy eventually gets uh, picked up by the authorities and so on. And um, then he has to eventually work out the, uh, uh, what these objects that he's been given actually mean. So, um, so that's the journey. But it's a very slow journey. It's 773 pages, basically. The incidents I gave you, they're not a spoiler. They happen right at the beginning of the book. It's a great start, isn't it? I mean, that, uh, I think one of the criticisms I saw about the book was that it was too plot-driven. But, you know, you can't write a 700-something page book without plot, can you? <laughs> that's right. Uh, yeah, and the plot was fairly spread out. Mm-hmm. So, um, uh, so a lot of people say it's actually too slow. Um, it's... Um, it's really, uh, I guess, the subject matter is 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 what makes it difficult for many people. In that, it's about growing up and dealing with your personal traumas, and mm. uh, and Donata is a very serious author. So there's very little um, sex and violence and car crashes. It's oh dear, <laughs> yeah. It's mostly um, a young boy sort of trying to make sense of his life, and and the book spans many years. So he's eventually an adult by the end of it. Um, but if you're interested in a human being being 
carefully painted and constructed and uh, page after page of him growing up it's it's uh, it's absolutely fascinating if you do need your car crashes and your drama <laughs> and your sex and violence uh, you're going to put this down halfway but it is also a book about art isn't it that's right. So uh, there are deep uh, themes uh, running uh, through the book, uh, such as the place of art in human life. And it's fascinating. I mean, we don't talk about this enough, I think. Uh, the fact that um, art is absolutely crucial to our understanding of ourselves, to our values, to our morals, to our relationships. It's the key to everything. And yet, you know, we think of art as oh, it's something for arty people yeah but it's it's a small painting a miniature right a goldfinch uh, yeah so it's a it's a the the art object but it, but the painting doesn't it barely appears in the book oh, because that's quite uh, interesting yeah because it's it's found it's uh it's picked up at the beginning in the explosion and then tucked away and then it's the you know there's a search for it and there's the boy wondering what he should do with it wondering if he's a criminal wondering if he's stolen it or wondering if he took it for a purpose uh, so the book, the art, the artwork itself uh, kind of disappears uh, at the beginning yeah. of the book. Uh, so it's about the, the nature uh, of art and, and where it fits into our lives. One interesting uh, odd aspect is that it, it appeared at the same time as a, as a very serious philosophy of science book called Mind and Cosmos oh, by yes. uh, yeah, Thomas Nagel, who's, uh, mm. who's probably the preeminent serious person. philosopher <laughs> yeah. of science yeah. he's known as. And he he wrote this book that totally blew away all the scientists. In fact, annoyed all the scientists because he said, "You think you scientists think that the world is about things, but it's not. It's about emotion and consciousness, and that's best expressed by art, not objects." Mm. So he was basically saying, "You know, you're wackos, you're artists, you're religious people, you're new age people." They're much closer to finding out what life is about than any scientist on the planet. And you can imagine what the scientists had to say about that. Horrors, horrors, <laughs> yes. especially as in the universities. It's the scientists who lead these days. That's you right, know? that's right. But uh, yeah, so um, we can see two great uh, areas of thought, two great writers, Thomas Nagel and, uh, and Donna Tartt, both sending the same message that actually mm. art is Art sums up life in a more holistic, valuable way than any other field of endeavor. So very deep thought for a, for a, for a morning for, show. Yeah, for a Sunday morning. <laughs> but I mean, if, if that is true, and a book, the book was very popular, it was widely read, it sold very well, that means a lot of people are also buying into this idea, or at least are compelled by it to read it. I know, it's shocking, isn't it? The world is full of intellectuals, who knew? Yeah, <laughs> full of deep-thinking people. Yeah, I thought, I thought we were alone on this planet. I know. I. Yeah. <laughs> we're discussing The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, who's been a, a huge bestseller, but uh, also one that's very much... Uh, divided the critics, won the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction uh, last year, uh, but it was also described as a complete turkey by, um, by the, the Sunday Times of London. Well, that brings up an interesting point. There seems to be a disconnect between these books that do so well with readers and then the critics are, are kind of, you know, squabbling over it. Why do you think that is? Yeah, it's very interesting, isn't it? And what does it mean? I mean, will these critics be sacked um, because they're so spectacularly wrong sometimes? Um, 
is that I, I don't know. I, I go back to Woody Allen's famous dictum, which is the audience is never wrong. <laughs> so if a critic says one thing and the audience says another, you go with the audience. And um, it's a difficult dictum because it it also means that uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Yes, but okay. the difference is, I think, Donna Tartt's book is not in the Fifty Shades of Grey category. You know, we don't think of it as genre that won't last. We get the feeling her books will will survive. Yeah, it's a, it's a classic, and I, I think we can genuinely say that the critics are wrong in this case because mm, it's been yes. a bestseller in so many countries mm-hmm. and won so many uh, awards. So uh, I feel a bit sorry for the critics. Oh, it's good on the I other don't. hand. <laughs> it's good for a, it's good to see people putting their uh, you know going out on a limb and saying this is a bad book and putting their name onto that mm-hmm. comment uh, because it means they're courageous. But it does mean that sometimes they're shown to be wildly wrong when mm-hmm. the book is loved by everybody else except them. And who who would you recommend this book for? Should I read it? Um, it's a it's a it's a book for the for those who who like uh, long, intense, rather slow books. Maybe a John Irving fans, mm, or um, okay. yeah, or uh, you know Wally Lamb. Yes, uh, the, yeah, Wally that's Lamb's the thing. Wally Lamb again, yeah. very long and slow mm-hmm. and deep. Um, but if you like if you like a thriller. Um, this is not it. This right? is not it. This is not for but you. But slow books are great for summer afternoons or long winter nights, aren't they? That's right. Yeah, mm-hmm. if you've got a long passion, you want something to get into that's, that doesn't move too fast, and mm-hmm. you've got that patience, then the, the Goldfinch is a good read. Well, that really raises the question: What's the role of the critic, especially today? I mean, it was clearer at a time when publishing had more of a, you know, there were sort of rules to how things happened. But things are a little bit wilder and crazier now. But anyway, that book was uh, The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt, a massive read. Well, we seem to be talking about art this week because I've brought Ben Share in Wonderland by Steve Gillis. Now, that's something I don't know about. I'd love to hear about it. Well, it's a brand new book in that its official release date was September the 15th. Wow. Which is really, really recent, (laughs) right? But I read it a little, you know, it was already for sale, so I I managed to find out about it and I read it. And, okay, the, the, the novel essentially is about the meaning and purpose of art. But at another level, it's also a novel about grieving because this is about a man who's lost his wife to cancer. Um... But what's interesting about it, it reads a little bit like an adventure story because I started reading it. I seriously couldn't put it down. It's not a huge book. It's, you know, a few hundred pages of regular length book. Um, and and it, it takes place in Africa, in the Kalahari Desert. So here's here's the setup. You have Michael Bansher, who's a middle-aged guy. He's a respected architect turned sculptor, and he's quite a well-known sculptor. And his wife... Um, who was an engineer, she dies of cancer. And we open on that, and we understand that the project that he wants to do is to go to the Kalahari Desert and build this gigantic sculpture, which is for the sake of art. It is all about art for art's sake. It sounds wonderfully mad. It's totally mad. So you have this rather 
um, well, he, he's a rather, um, how can I put it, passionate guy, you know, who goes out there. So he, he brings this whole troop of people. And the thing that's interesting about this novel is that it takes us into, against the political landscape of what is going on in Africa at this time. And, and that I found quite interesting because it makes sort of political statements without wanting to, on the other hand, you know, so it collides between art is not political, but then this political thing happens. Because what happens is he goes out to the desert he sets up camp, if you like, with his entourage and the filmmaker who comes to document it. And his daughter comes along as well. Um, she's a musician, singer. Um, and as they erect this huge sculpture, more and more people come. It becomes like a happening. Everybody gathers around and they make camp around this place. Uh, prior to that, they had sort of sold a few places to people who wanted to be there to help with the project. Um, but of course, some of the people who pay to come along actually just sit around and want to consider how they can turn this into a capitalistic, you know, <laughs> money-making venture for themselves, you know. Um, so, so you have this large cast of characters who come along. Um, including um, this woman, Denna, who becomes kind of a love interest for him. But he, you know, he's he was very much in love with his wife. And we get the backstory of, of how they met. Um, and, and that's a funny one. I'll talk about that in a minute, too. Um, but he's not ready, in a way, to move on. Because in a way, the sculpture that he's building, this art that he's building, is kind of a monument to his wife as well. And it's very touching on some levels to hear this kind of wild and passionate and crazy madman artist doing this, but at the same time, kind of wanting to, to work through the grief of lo- losing this, you know, the woman in his life. Mm-hmm. Is it, a, it sounds um, quite poignant and, uh, and sad, uh, but is it, a, is it an uplifting read? It is, because strangely, as I said, it reads a bit like an adventure story because, you know, since he's going to Africa, the U.S. government, since he's quite a prominent person, is like, hmm, what's he going out there to do? What is this all about? Why is he gathering all these people? So they send this these two people called Rose and Stern, Haha, <laughs> guess where we're echoing there. Um, to That's kind of reference hang out to there. Hamlet, we should say. Yes, yes, yes of course. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. Yeah, yeah. And they are like this comic relief, these two guys who are sort of monitoring it. And it's never quite mm. clear where they're from, but they're sort of CIA, something like that, you know, just making sure what the heck's going on, mm. you know. And they can't quite figure out because he keeps insisting, I'm just doing this for art. You know, and, and what is interesting too, you have the people from the first world, if you like, coming and gathering around, including some of his students who who are um who are there helping him as well, as well as all these Africans who come out, um, who who are watching it and he helps them do uh, transact some business by setting up like a little food stand or drinks and things like that. And he won't help his first world capitalist guys who, who want to build some kind of big resort around it or a big condominium project and all the rest of it or hotels and all that. So it's also about a clash of you know what the first world things it brings to Africa, to the third world, and what the third world itself needs and wants. It sounds like a good book for a Hong Kong or an Asian audience. Well, I thought so. It really big business interests, and you've got the artist trying to colliding with the artists. Um, And there are all these subplots going on. As I said, it's a book with large cast of characters. But what I find interesting, he has a very um, succinct style. It's quite lyrical, actually. He's he's a beautiful writer. This is his fifth novel, Um, and because he does it in these very short almost lyrical burst chapters, sort of. It moves quite 
quickly and you you get all these characters and you find you don't forget them somehow he he kind of leaves a tell about each one of them if you like and you find yourself remembering them as you go all the way through the book that's almost dickensian in that it, sense in that sense it is i thought that he used a lot of what you would think of as classic 19th century novelistic techniques but in a very updated way because the book is short it's snappy the chapters aren't long um and they just you know it opens for example in this lyrical beautiful moment he's in bed you know he reaches over and his wife is not there Aww. you know it's so sad it's so poignant and and well when he recounts how they met you know he comes in he's this sort of brash young you know hot shot guy who thinks a lot of himself and his wife is this engineer and so he he starts talking about art and about architecture and what it should be and um his wife kind of challenges him and and sort of comes up and you know and, and so he's very intrigued by this young woman who's you know who's quite attractive and who who's talking about the engineer's role you know i'm building a house at the moment so i'm very interested in this dynamic right. between the architect and the engineer and on some level i think the novel does show you that it's not just about the creative genius but also everything that goes behind making that creative genius's vision come true you know because without the engineer to say hey you know that's not going to work that you know that building is going to fall down if you don't you know do this or or, or raise the foundation in this way um it's it just won't happen so that's much more of a teamwork even though we we're, we're seeing the artist as the individual too who who roars who who yells who screams and who who must do this he he says i will i will go and do this mm. so there is a deep uh, philosophical uh, theme as well as a, a story and, and uh, a funny story even. At times it's very funny there, there's a lot of humour in it for example, well Rose and Stern is one, you know, and, and the, the art academy that he teaches at is the Backwater Art Academy <laughs> <You know? laughs> so we, we have little things like this um, um, and then there's the pilot Harper who, who is his old buddy who takes him out to Africa, they've, they've gone to Africa in the past he and his wife have done projects there before Um, but um, I think that the happening around the art project becomes of interest to all the countries you know around them and he's even invited to another country to do another art project and so it it speaks to the meaning especially of public art installations what do they mean because often you know they bring prestige to a city or to a country you know and and but then the the question is well but what does this mean well like the duck in our harbour for example that you know floated around (laughs) for a while all these sort of very visual and large and visible projects um Actually, I had a town in one of my books called Utter Backwater, so perhaps mm. I can sue him. Mm. Well, it depends. So, yes, your book came out first, didn't it? <laughs> now, who's, who's this book for? It sounds like a great read. I think this this would have quite universal appeal. I was quite surprised by it because, you know, I had vaguely heard about it. But if you think about Alice in Wonderland, you are in a kind of madcap wonderland where all kinds of crazy things happen to all these people. At times you think, here's the Red Queen. This is what I'm listening to right here. Um, so I think it would have quite broad appeal, actually. It's from a very small press. It's not a, a very well-known press. It's Hawthorne Books. Um, but I think very often the small presses are doing the more, you know, adventurous kind of books, more courageous kinds of books that are good reads as well as um, literary, as well as deep. Yes, I mean, Harry Potter came from a small From a small, it was the Scholastic, wasn't it? Yeah, Yeah, that's right. It was uh, Bloomsbury, I think, which then sold it onto Scholastic. To Scholastic, yeah. 
for me, it brings up one other issue. You know, often you have to figure of the artist as this lone person who, you know, him against the world. And to some extent, um, Michael Ben Cher, the, the protagonist, is like that. But he's also a family man. He loves his wife. He isn't somebody who's going around cheating on his wife like so many artist figures we see. Um, and he loves his children. He cares about them. And I thought that was really quite touching and moving about the book. Anyway, my book this week is Ben Share in Wonderland by Steve Gillis. And now on Read All About It, uh, we're going to talk about our classic of the week. And this week's it's uh, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. A real classic, a very modern classic, but it was only published in 1960, actually. Yeah, that's right. But uh, I think 40 million copies or something like that. <laughs> yes, we it? all should sell that many books. <laughs> yes, yes. It was published in 1960 and it was immediately successful. It was a huge hit and uh, changed the fortunes of a, of a first-time author. Can I you believe know. it? And of course, um, Harper Lee has been very much in the news lately because of Ghost Set a Watchman, the, the, yeah. the manuscript that was discovered and finally published, which is the grown-up scout rather than the girl <laughs> yes. scout. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to Kill a Mockingbird, for, the, for those who, who don't know it, it's about, um, it's the story seen through the eyes of, uh, of two or three children in, uh, in a small town. It's called Maycomb in the, um, in, the, in the book. It's actually Monroeville in real life. Uh, uh, it's, um, it's, it's, the small, it's small children witnessing life. And life is very serious. There's, a, there's, you know, there's a murder, there's a rape. There's uh, racial violence. There's all sorts of very, very dark things. But it's all filtered through the eyes of the, these, uh, these uh, brother and sister and their, their, their buddy. And uh, it's something very moving about this book, isn't there? Well, a lot of it is the voice of Scout because she's the one who's the narrator telling us the story. Um, it's a, it's a, a very powerful voice. You start reading it and you cannot stop just drawn into the way she tells the story. She's a very precocious young girl, Yes, I mean, really. she's six years old. I know, it's unbelievable. Yes, and she's only like in, going into third grade or something. And, and, she, and yet she's, because she's been raised by a father, there is no mother in the story. Um, there's an aunt that shows up, Aunt Alexandra, who's the proper aunt, you know, but she clearly is um, her father's daughter. And yes. he's a lawyer, of course, Atticus Finch. So you've got this filter because a six-year-old girl is telling the story and, of course, she doesn't know what rape is. She doesn't know what race violence is. She doesn't know any of these things. She just knows people. And she knows the man who's accused of these uh, dreadful crimes. is just a nice man who's quite clearly innocent of the crimes. And so it's a very, uh, it's a very uh, heart-tugging, emotional, um, edge-of-the-seat story. Is he going to get away? Is he going to be charged with these awful crimes? Yes, and it's a book about race also, because, of course, this is Alabama in the 1930s. So it's the black-white question, you know, because Atticus Finch and most of the people in town are white, and then there are all the black people as well. And here is this black man accused of raping a white girl. And the white girl in question is white trash, which is a very interesting American expression about the, about people in the South, especially. Yeah. 
It's interesting, if you've seen the movie uh, Capote, which is about Truman Capote, uh, you see uh, the, the famous uh, investigative journalist uh, on, on his rounds, but you also see a, a young woman who's like his assistant. And in fact, those two were buddies. They were great buddies. Yeah. Uh, well, they kind of fell out a little later on, but Harper Lee, I yeah. mean, her, her going to New York was very much, you know, to become the author. She was very ambitious and very, you know, as a young woman, and she really wanted to be a writer. That's right, and her name wasn't even really Harper Lee. It was, it was Nell, wasn't it? Nell, yeah. It was Ellen Backwards mm -hmm. uh, as a, some sort of uh, convention. And uh, uh, it's it's kind of a... was was luck uh, going to New York, but um, she she fell in with this uh, uh, editor called Hohoff, who... Uh, People think must have done a lot of rewriting because the book was such a masterpiece and it did take two years. And at one stage, um, uh, there was so much rewriting to do that she that uh, that that Nell Harper Lee threw the whole manuscript out the window. That's right. Into the snow, I yeah. think, or something. Yeah. Famous story. And Hohoff on the phone ordered her. Go out into the snow now Get and it. pick up every page <laughs> and bring it back inside. And she did, and thank God for that. Yeah, but what's at the centre of the story, of course, is the trial that Atticus Finch, he defends, he, he's assigned to defend um, Robinson, uh, Tom Robinson, uh, the, the black, black man guy. accused yeah. of the, the um, And of course, you know, it, it's... Um, it's a very interesting scene in the, the book. The movie that has come out of the, that that has made the book so well known also actually makes the the trial much more the center of the story. But a big part of the story is just these three kids growing up in this little town and trying to make sense of life. And then there's this mysterious guy, Boo Radley, that doesn't come out of his house, you know? That's absolutely wonderful. And uh, I'm so angry with my kid's teacher because I was really, really uh, looking forward to reading this book to my kids. And uh, she showed them the movie. Oh, so no. They know, the they know the ending. Yeah, yeah. and uh, it's such a... I mean, the, the Boo Radley episode. is Oh, that's amazing. Absolutely. Yes, yeah. Heart in mouth stuff. And, I know. Uh, to, yeah, to, yeah. Be, to, 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 to lose the pleasure of telling that to your kids is a real crime. That's unfair. I think it's a much better book read, really, than the movie is. It's a much better book. In fact, it still sells 750,000 <laughs> copies a year. Well, I don't think any American school kid can get out of high school without... <laughs> having read To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, which is kind of a shame, because if you're ordered to read it, you probably won't enjoy it. I know, but, you know, I think it, it's, a, it's a big favourite for a lot of people still. It yeah. remains at the top of everybody's list. Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, there was a survey of British librarians, and they said the Bible and To Kill a Mockingbird were <laughs> two books you had to read before you die, <laughs> if you only read two books, you know. And I think they put Mockingbird... Before, Before the, the Bible. Bible. Yeah. Oh, no. So that's a big compliment there. Wow. There is one thing that springs to mind, though, that, which is the, the, the sort of the way Atticus Finch is characterized. He's almost, you know, too godlike. He's almost like too perfect. You know, he's the non-racist guy in town. He's a man who heralds all these great values, um, which, of course, gets overturned when you know, Watchmen came out a little bit. Yeah. yeah. That's that's right, but uh, I, I think we can forgive him that. Uh, Watchmen has not been very well received by critics. No, so. it's a very different kind of book. Yeah. Which, and it does seem to be in an early draft as opposed yes. to an actual separate book. Uh, for, for me, what's important is, is her own story. I mean, she was a reservations clerk for... B O A C. That's what. That's what Harper Lee was actually. It's her proper job. 
when she decided to to give it all up and 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 write for a living. So once again, we've come to the end of read all about it. We've just been talking about To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, and that's our classic. But uh, earlier, we talked about The Goldfinch by Donna Tart and Ben Share in Wonderland by Steve Gillis. Bye bye for now. Uh-huh.